Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Opto Sessions. I'm Hayden Brain and this is the first of two episodes where we'll be looking back at our favourite themes and insights from the show over the past year. Along the way, we'll be checking back in with some of our most interesting guests and assessing some of the big takeaways from 2021. These are my own personal best bits, so make sure you tune in next week to hear Ed take you through his choices. So without further ado, let's get going. For me, one of the most remarkable things about working on the podcast this year has been the amount of guests who have come on to talk about the need to invest in disruptive innovation. Whether it be digital assets, genomics, or one of the thousands of businesses developing tech to tackle long, unresolved problems, innovation is at the forefront of many of our guests' investing strategies. Let's start with an episode Ed recorded back in March, where FinTwit influencer and social capital portfolio manager Jonah Lupton described how he invests in disruptive innovation by focusing on smaller companies. I've been building a portfolio of smaller stocks, uh, mostly under 10 billion, although I'd say at least half of my portfolio was under 5 billion. Um, And I'm looking for companies that are growing revenues at at least 30% for the next two or three years. So sustainable revenue growth above 30%. Although I will say most of my stocks are above 50%. And then a handful of them are over 100, 200%. But you know, those are companies that are much smaller. So they're starting at a, a much lower base in terms of current revenue. So it's obviously easier. You know, it's easier to get 200% revenue growth when you're starting at 5 million versus 5 billion, which is the case in like Derm Tech. So I look for companies under 5 or 10 billion market cap growing at least 30% for the next few years, reasonable valuations, low analyst coverage. So you know, one of the nice things about these small caps and mid caps is that the big Wall Street firms aren't necessarily covering them. You know, you, you might have 45 analysts that cover uh, Facebook. You might have three analysts that cover Dermtech or Upstart, or in some cases, none because there are recent SPACs and the analysts haven't even picked up coverage yet. So, you know, no one's really paying attention to some of these companies like Mohawk that I got into back in December, you know, had like two analysts covering it. So, there's just a ton of opportunity out there to find these companies that that Wall Street hasn't started paying attention to yet, and then get into them at reasonable valuations with some sort of an upcoming catalyst. Um, you know, either a new product launch, or maybe an acquisition, or you know, FDA approval for something, or in the case of Aram Tech, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, picking up um, coverage for all their members. So things like that, that would obviously put the stock on the radar of the big funds and get some multiple expansion and get that stock price moving higher. So it's early stage, basically, before the big money's been interested and, and you ride that sort of growth up when they start getting putting some proper money into it. Uh, correct. Most of these stocks that I'm getting into now, um, you know, I would say last year I was more of an opportunistic investor. Um, you know, looking at the trends and, and playing those trends. And then when I thought those trends were, you know, coming to an end, you know, jumping out before the multiple started to contract, you know, now that I'm looking at the smaller caps, um, market caps under 5 billion, I just think these are stocks that are in the, you know, the early days, the infancy of their hyper growth. 
So these are companies that I want to get in now and hold them for the next three to five years and grow with them. And, you know, obviously with those types of companies selling at high multiples, high growth rates, you know, one month they're going to be in favor, the next month they'll be out of favor. So you're going to get plenty of pullbacks along the way and, you know, or even stock offerings, you know, because a lot of these companies are, are still losing money as they're, you know, growing and launching new products and, mm, okay. uh, you know, trying to take market share. They're going to lose money for the first three or four years doing that. And they'll have to issue some, you know, some new stock along the way to raise capital. And that's fine. Those are typically buying opportunities for me. When reflecting on the year, I like to think about pervasive macro trends, mega trends, if you like, that just keep cropping up and capture a blend of several exciting investment themes. For example, many of our guests this year talked about digital assets, and there's no doubt they will play a crucial role in the new digital economy. But that new digital economy isn't just cryptocurrencies and blockchain. In August, Bruce Liu, CEO of Esoterica, discussed the seismic changes to our future economy's infrastructure with the introduction of 5G. Well, uh, a lot of people actually were asking that questions because they feel like everybody got a smartphone, we're connected. So mm-hmm. like a 5G, yeah, sounds interesting. Uh, might be just faster mm-hmm. and you can do something more on your phone. The phone is smart enough. Mm-hmm. What else, right? And uh, look beyond this. Like what I mentioned earlier, that's for the 4G cycle, mobile internet. People yeah. get connected. Now it's all about like, you know, getting things connected. Like manufacturing, that's one example. Healthcare, you know, hospitals, and even the smart cities, all the things out there, they're not connected yet, right? Mm. And uh, uh, even the stuff, you know, your, uh, your TV and your fridge and uh, are not connected. Some people done that already, but most of them, they, you, you just don't, you haven't done that yet. Mm. There are a lot, you know, potential connectivities out there. I think that 5G is trying to capture. Yeah, and uh, 5G is going to, Really making everything connected. Well, connected is only one thing. More meaningful thing is when everything gets connected and uh, well, you need to respond, you know, uh, timely, you know, no, no, no latency, no delay. That yeah. just generates tons of data. That just generates tons of data. You can imagine your mind now, like, you know, in the economy you are living in, the society you are living in. You know, every corner is everything is connected. They are generating data instantly, all the time, right? <laughs> so that's how we look at the 5G opportunities. So, you know, forget about the verticals, the application. Just think about when you are living in a society, in you know, a world, everything is connected. You got to take data over you. How you first generate data, then transport data, then process that data. Eventually, you know, maybe you have to store those data. And, you know, that's how we see the opportunity sets. And uh, it's coming from the 5G cycle. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you some, like, you know, uh, examples. And uh, uh, first yeah, of all, sure. of, of course, like a smartphone is it's early, you know, thing. You know, like everybody was talking about the 5G phone. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but, you know, uh, within the phone, to enable that 5G thing, you need much better semiconductors. The phone itself, you know, in the 4G cycle, we we didn't have the smartphone before 4G cycle. Apple basically, you know, invented that, right? So that mm-hmm. marginal change is from zero to one. So that's huge. That's why, like, Apple benefited so much through the the 4G cycle. But mm-hmm. from the 4G to 5G, that's different. 
you know, everybody got a smartphone already. All you need to do, you just upgrade your phone. So that's no longer a zero to one process. You know, it's just mm. upgrading. So that's why in the 5G cycle, we're not that bullish on the phones at all. <laughs> but what, mm. what, what has changed is, you know, to enable 5G and all the applications it might be able to achieve. The semiconductors in your phone has to, you know, we, you know professionally what we call the semi-content. You know, mm. the, the number of chips has to increase, you know, significantly. I then spoke to Ross Gerber, co-founder and CEO of wealth management firm Gerber Kawasaki, who came on to discuss a different but equally interesting megatrend, things that used to be illegal. Ross told me that he'd initially started to track the trend by investing in American sports gambling, historically forbidden by U.S. federal law. Now, though, his focus is on a brand new industry. Cannabis, I'm super bullish on, never been more bullish. Can't believe how undervalued, especially US MSO operators are that trade in Canada. Um, cannabis is different than gambling because it's like drinking. So we all have stressful lives between our kids and our jobs and we go home. Or, or let's say what the example, you're a British guy, you finish work, you go to the pub, you have a drink, you bet on a few games, but it was illegal to smoke cannabis. Okay. So if you went out into the alley and smoked the J with your friends and then came back and watched the second half of the game, that part was illegal. You could, you could drink and get in a fight. You know, you can gamble all your money away, but the part where you went out in the alley and smoked the J was illegal. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So that's ended because there's actually cannabis is much less harmful than alcohol and cigarettes. There's no reason why it's illegal other than it's what we call a Jim Crow law in the United States. There are laws used to oppress immigrants and minorities. And so um, back in the days of you know, post-slavery era in America, they wanted to create laws where they could jail African-Americans for no reason. Cannabis was an easy one, and it's been used this way throughout history. The British did the same thing. You know, in imperialist British governments would come up with laws in foreign countries and just jail people you know, for ridiculous rules, you know, it, it, you know, it was tough if you were in some of these countries that the British occupied, you know. So there's literally a, probably a million African-American black people in jail for no reason at all, just because they were selling or using cannabis. Um, so now cannabis is legal in most states or for medical or recreational. The federal government is now the big boogeyman here, just like holding back over whatever, but this is going to end. So we got the infrastructure bill this week. And we're going to get the reconciliation bill over the next couple months. They want to get it done soon. Um, and then we move to cannabis. And this is about social equity. And it's about reconciling the laws with reality and tax money, the money they can get in taxes. And so cannabis will be legalized in the United States very, very soon or decriminalized to some degree or deschedulized. And this will be a boon for the US MSO, a multi-state operator cannabis companies, because sales are through the roof. The products are amazing. The marketing's amazing. Um, the stores are amazing. They've already built an amazing industry, whether it's Green Thumb or, or TerraSend or uh, True Leave in Florida. These are great businesses with great CEOs making tons of cash flow. And boy, you think out 10 years in this business, it'll be like a mature uh, alcohol business. So, you know, to me, this is one of the more obvious themes because um, as a cannabis smoker myself, I can tell you um, the benefits when it comes to stress and sleeping, especially sleeping, 
are huge. And you look at the pharmaceutical drugs people are taking today for stress and sleeping, and they're just super bad for people. So I, I think it'll be a big benefit for people in society to just have it be legal. Where Bruce and Ross covered a broad range of innovative companies across multiple themes, we also spoke to industry specialists, people able to take us deep into the weeds of one particular niche. And with that in mind, Kevin Carter, CEO and founder of EMQQ, described how it's not just developments in the digital economies of large, well-connected Western cities investors should have their eyes on. Instead, Kevin described the unprecedented opportunity emerging as the developing world comes online. We've definitely never seen this before. I mean, I, again, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm 99.5% sure this is the fastest growing sector of publicly traded companies ever, uh, as measured by their revenue. And I, again, I, I could be wrong, but I've offered cash rewards to thousands of CFA charter holders, and I've asked everybody I know that's smarter and more experienced than me, and nobody can tell me a sector so far that's grown for a decade at an average of 38%. And it's, you know, as, as we started, McKinsey and Company, as you noted, calls the growth of the emerging market consumer the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. And again, that's a hyperbolic statement, but let's say that at least directionally it's true or, or close to true. And so you had that mega trend as the backdrop. And that was in place well before the smartphone came along. But what's happened is there's a, a what we call a great confluence going on that's, that's powering and, and causing that incredible growth rate. Billions of people becoming consumers and wanting stuff. Now, importantly, these people, they don't have a bank account with a debit card in their pocket. They don't have a television on their wall that has a thousand channels. They don't have a Target store to go to. And they, if, even if they had a Target store, they don't have a car to drive to it. So these people are becoming consumers, but the consumption infrastructure doesn't exist. And, and the second mega trend is the smartphone. But it's not the smartphone. It's the computer. We take computers for granted. I've had a computer for 30 years. I had a computer for 20 years before I got a smartphone. Most of the world has never had a computer. So all of these new consumers are getting their first ever computer. It's not on their desk. It's in their pocket. And in most cases, it doesn't have an Apple logo because we're talking about $50, $60, $80 smartphones made in China and running on Android. And they're getting better every year and more affordable every year. And they are bringing the third megatrend with it, which is a megatrend that I was very, very early in adopting in 1995 in San Francisco. I got the internet for the first time over a telephone line with a modem. Then the internet went onto a cable. Well, now the internet just shows up in my pocket. Well, guess what? Western China, India, Africa, these places have never been wired. And so as these billions of people get that first ever computer in their pocket, they're also getting the internet for the first time. And this is happening today. This is hundreds of thousands of people today will get their first ever computer and their first ever internet access and their lives will change in dramatic ways. And 
they will continue to grow as consumers. But even as sort of a paradox, they're even more digital than we are as they leapfrog uh, what we think of as traditional consumption. Another specialist is ARK Invest genomic revolution analyst, Ali Ehrman. And in November, Ali described the dramatic transformation underway in the sequencing of the human genome. So one of the things we look for is, does this technology have a precipitative cost decline? And is it disruptive? You know, we focused on disruptive innovation. And so those two things are quite important to us. We know that DNA sequencing certainly has had a precipitative cost decline, certainly has been disruptive in so many ways. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those ways a little later on. But essentially, it went from being $100,000 to sub-1,000 in basically two decades, which is one of the most rapid declines I've ever seen. Um, It's probably more than any technology anywhere. Uh, The curve is decreasing still, but maybe not as fast as it was in 2009. Um, That's going to be because before that, it was sort of this first-generation sequencing. And as we know, know, new tech is important, and we need to continue to iterate to get better and better. But let's look at the bigger picture, right? Those are kind of in the weed details. So the bigger picture is $1 million per NGS uh, sample is going to be cost-prohibitive, right? We're not going to have a patient come into clinic and sequence for a million dollars. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, We can't do that on a per patient basis, right? That's what we're talking about. But now we're seeing that sequencing can go between $100 to $1,000. So now is really a time where sequencing becomes affordable and therefore it becomes clinically meaningful to the patient, which is ultimately, as we talked about before, the most important thing, right? We want to deliver meaningful insights to patients that can actually provide, you know, potential cures or at least real therapies that can help patients um, and hopefully real insights that can help them as well. So as costs decline, there's really this inflection in demand and this could also increase adoption, right? As as the price declines, well, then we can actually use it um, on patients. So, you know, we believe that the number of whole human genome sequencing per year will scale up about 110% at an annual rate. And that means that it's going to go from sequencing about 2.6 million in 2019 to about 105 million in 2024. So, okay, we we talked about a lot there. We kind of went deep into the weeds, but let's kind of do the 30,000 foot view, right? Why does this matter? What are we talking about? Sequencing the first human genome costs about $1 billion, and it took about 13 years to complete. Today, it costs hundreds to thousands, and it takes just one to two days. So you can imagine how much progress we've made and also how important those insights could actually be to patients, caregivers, physicians, pharma companies. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. Finally, I want to close out the year by talking about a couple of our guests' favorite stocks. It's always fascinating when we have a guest who's passionate about the future of a particular company they're invested in. And a good example of that would be Jonah Lupton, who in July told me why he's bullish on AI lending platform Upstart. I think it is the future. I mean, I think you uh, you really hit the, the nail on the head right there. So so I've been in, just like Futu, you know, I've been in this stock for the last six or seven months since it was in the high 30s. Mm-hmm. Now Upstart is trading in the 120s. And it actually got up as high as 191 uh, a few weeks ago before they got into their lockup expiration. The entire credit rating system is based off of FICO scores. And FICO scores were, were created like 30 years ago, and they really have not changed much. 
And for anyone that's ever pulled up your credit report or had a problem with your credit report, I mean, you understand how frustrating it is. Um, and it's because it's just a very outdated system, but yet that's what the entire banking and financial system uses to determine someone's credit worthiness and whether or not you should be getting a loan and what interest rate you should be paying on that loan. And what Dave and his team decided at Upstart was that was ridiculous. There should be a more advanced, more sophisticated model with more variables and more data points that continue to get smarter and smarter over time, which is basically what AI is supposed to do. And that's how the company was sort of reinvented. And over the last eight years, they have you know, continued to perfect this model by adding more variables and more data points. So they're now up to 1,600 variables and 16 billion data points. And that's because every time, every time a loan is applied for, approved, denied, a payment is made, a payment is missed, like all of these different events all create data points that allows this AI model to keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter. Um, so it's able to do things that FICO scores can't do. And for people that, you know, for maybe people like myself, you know, me, me and you that make good money, um, you know, we have cash in the bank, maybe we own a house, uh, but we have a, a high credit score. We don't have a problem getting loans, but there are tens and millions of people out there that, you know, make a little bit less money. Yeah. Maybe they had some credit problems a few years ago. Those things are still on their credit report. It's still hurting their credit rating. It's still hurting their ability to get a loan, but yet they've done a lot of great things over the last few years that makes them a less risky borrower. Um, and that's what AI is able to pick up on that FICO scores cannot. And, and that's why I'm just so optimistic uh, and excited about what this company is going to do over the next five and 10 years for our, you know, for our credit system. I also enjoyed hearing from Emmett Savage, who in October told me about the one stock he's most excited about. Well, my favorite isn't my largest. My largest as of this morning uh, was Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes neck and neck with Tesla, depending on the day. And there are two names that need no introduction or explanation today. Uh, but they certainly did when I invested in them. I can tell you, nobody <laughs> heard of Netflix when I bought it 20 years ago. And, and Tesla, same story, 12 years ago. So, but, so they're my two biggest uh, assets, I guess. But my favorite, um, right, my favorite stock, if I had to buy one stock now, and go to a desert island for 20 years, I think that honor would go to Atlassian, mm -hmm. the makers of business software packages such as Trello and Jira and Bitbucket. And um, the co-founders, Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon Brooks, they're only in their 40s. Like they're still young men. They own 40% of the company or thereabouts, or 48%, I think, actually, they nearly have 50% ownership. It has tons of cash, something like $1.6 billion, and a product that sells itself through a land and expand model. And I truly believe that Atlassian is the next Microsoft, quote unquote. That's it from me for this year's Opto Sessions. It's flown by and it's been a real privilege to talk to such an amazing range of guests. We're not quite done just yet, though. Ed will be here this time next week to tell you all about his favorite moments from this past year. So make sure you tune in for that. Thanks to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show this year and to ensure you receive content from across the Opto ecosystem, Google Opto and sign up for our daily newsletter using the research tab at the top of our homepage. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas break and I look forward to speaking to you all next year.